Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhurasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhurasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhurasa Some of you, that was a very different way that I usually start a talk. But it's really very much the theme of my talk this evening. The words that I was chanting are Pali, which is the language that the uh, suttas, the teachings of the Buddha, are written in. And it is said that there's a few opinions, but one of the opinions is that that's actually the language that the Buddha spoke. The words mean, uh, I pay homage to the Blessed One, the Perfectly Enlightened One. And it's the theme of my talk. Um, I tend to stay on the liberal side of religiosity. Because I actually don't believe that the Buddha was religious, nor that the Buddha created Buddhism. Uh, I feel like that was created year, you know, hundreds of years later. I feel like uh, there actually, from what I know from my study, there was no actual word for religion. Or the word uh, that the Buddha gave for this teaching is the path. And so, that being said, I don't talk a lot about even though this center is much different than some of the other centers that I teach in where there's not a lot of Buddha statues and whatnot. But I figure um, it's important to really discuss and to talk about what it means to uh, both be Buddhist and what it means to not be Buddhist and follow a Buddhist path. Uh, I don't consider myself a Buddhist, yet I follow a Buddhist path. And I teach Buddhism, (laughs) whatever that means. Because it means different things for different people. But my topic tonight is about the triple gem. Otherwise known as the three refuges. And this is really, um, from the Buddhist perspective, what it means to be Buddhist. To take refuge in the triple gem. The Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I'm going to talk you know, more about that. So in Buddhism, you know, we talk about verifiable faith. So there's this idea of faith. But it's very different than what I think other uh, religions uh, point to when they point to faith. It's not a blind faith in something that you can't feel, connect to, understand. And this is actually what was uh, initially extremely uh, appealing to me. This and the rebellious quality of the teaching itself. Because, you know, I had spent some time in my early life, you know, just as we all, anyone that any of these grew up in this country, uh, inundated with, you know, the different understandings of uh, kind of blind faith and uh, 
what's commonly known as kind of Judeo-Christian understanding of faith. So I had kind of a, uh, I'm not quite, just skeptical. And uh, skepticism is a good thing. And it's helpful in Buddhism. Because it leads us to inquiry. And it also uh, helps to keep those who uh, are in my position honest. So uh, Buddhism never has promoted blind faith. Maybe, and they just re- retract that and reframe that a little bit. Theravadan Buddhism. Theravadan means the path of the elders. This isn't um, an aspect of Theravadan Buddhism, which is what I'm representing. Now, there are multiple aspects, multiple kind of uh, sects of Buddhism these days, especially here in America. It's like the mixed salad or the tossed salad of Buddhism here in the States. Which is an interesting thing, actually. I just came back from a Buddhist teacher's conference where there were 250 uh, of the you know most renowned teachers, pioneers of Buddhism, going back 60 years, bringing Buddhism to the States. Pretty amazing. And then there were 50, so there was 200 of those folks and then there was 50 of what's called the next generation. And that was me and 50 other people from, diff- from 49 other people from different, uh, different kind of uh, lineages of Buddhism. Kind of all coming together. Really under the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. That was really the key. It's to see the commonalities and not the differences. And to not bicker, but to talk about connection. Because we like to bicker. We like to argue. We like to separate. We like to find reasons to be other than. And it's the cause of our suffering. So this faith. This verifiable faith. I'll, talk, I'll touch more on it later. So also understand the, you know, the concept of a higher power. That sometimes, uh, you know, and for me, entering into Buddhist practice, you know, I came in not knowing anything about philosophy of Buddhism, which I'm actually really, really grateful for. I learned how to meditate, and it was helpful. And I knew nothing about Buddhism. I only knew about the practice for like, you know, five, six, seven years. And so having a concept of a higher power and then understanding oh, wait, within Buddhism there isn't a higher power or there isn't a god, an overseer god, a kind of permanent almighty being that's watching over us. And there's a lot of, even in other countries within Buddhism, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. That uh, in other countries I've been to and practiced and monasteries, monasteries I've stayed at, there really is this kind of Buddha is God. That's kind of concept of bowing to a statue. As I'm kind of paying homage to like, say, Jesus Christ or something like this. And it was really confusing for me to first kind of rebel against my own kind of heritage, you know, a religious upbringing. 
into Buddhism and then uh, going to see, oh wow, well other people view the, the, the way that I view Buddhism, other people view it differently, like the way I viewed Christianity, to be in a, in a culture that's kind of inundated with you know, Buddhism. It was really interesting. In some of the you know in some of the different places that I've been, primarily Southeast Asia, India. So I just thought I would give a little bit of context around, you know, what is the three refuges? What is the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha? There's a lot of threes. You know, most times most teachers will ring the bell three times. There's three candles. This is all. Uh, representation of the triple gem. I didn't know that for like years. <laughs> I asked one time, why do you ring the bell three times? So I encourage you to ask questions like that because it's, it's good that you know. So taking refuge in the Buddha. So what does this mean? It's not taking refuge in him as a person, in this man who lived 2,560 years ago. It's not really taking refuge in him. He's gone, been gone. Right? And it's not taking refuge in the statues, although that's a representation, but really in the fact of his awakening. It's taking refuge in the knowing or the believing or the in some ways, the verifiable faith of his awakening, that he did awaken. And that that same potential lies within all of us. But this is really when it's said to take refuge in the Buddha. It's to take refuge in the awakening that is possible within all of us. I think that's a really important distinction. And so when you do see people bowing to a Buddha statue, they're in, in some ways, the way I view it, is they're actually bowing to their own potential for awakening and paying homage to the one who pointed the way. One of many, actually. So it's kind of like placing our trust in the belief that he did awaken to the truth, and that he did so by developing, you know, the certain number, uh, certain qualities that we too can develop. I'll go into those qualities in a little bit. And the other uh, taking refuge in the Buddha is also taking refuge in the um, in the truth to which he awoke, and then the idea that 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 truth or these truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path are considered the best perspective of the way to conduct ourselves in this life. To be free. To be free from suffering. To be free from our own torments of mind. Our own uh, you know, greed. Greediness. This kind of wanting. This craving that continually causes us suffering. This wanting things to be other than they are. From this ill will, this hatred, this aversion to things being different, to things not changing. We want this aversion. We want things to stay the same. Or we want things to change quickly. And then the, the ignorance or the delusion, this delusive quality that goes 
It's just so deep. We're so deluded from time to time, you know. And what happens for me around that is recognizing when I'm like, I'm not deluded, is when I'm the most deluded. Like, not me. I see clearly. Hmm. Do you? Do I? This is where it's important to have spiritual friends. So this is some of the ideas of taking refuge in in the Buddha. Buddha, which just means awakened one. I just feel like that's very important to understand. Because uh, even though it seems very religious, it's it's very practical. This is a very practical path. It's very non-mystic. Of course, there are some sects where there is some mysticism. And even within this, within the Theravadan tradition, there is some mysticism. Because within every story, there's some mysticism. Archetypal. You know, the Buddha is an archetype, the hero. Jungian psychology points to that time and time again. We need these kind of leaders. Gandhi, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. We need these heroes to rise up and speak truth. Archetypally, Jungian perspective, this is what the Buddha was. You know, an interesting fact uh, that I found out a few years ago when I was kind of inquiring about this uh, three refuges and how you know necessary are they. I found out that actually in the time of the Buddha... Um, People would, you know, they would come to the Buddha and they would, they would get down on their knees and they would bow and they would say, please take me into your Sangha, teach me. You know, I pay homage to you, like in the same chanting that I did. And the Buddha was always like, no, no. It's not me. That he would say, if you want to take refuge somewhere, take refuge in the Dharma. So what is the Dharma? The Dharma has many different uh, translations. The one that I like the best is the truth in nature. Dharma just means the truth in nature. Or the truth of all things. It works for me. It may not work for you, but it works for me. Because if you spend any time in the forest, or on the beach, or in nature, and you just observe, truth is revealed. And that truth still lies within us. And from the Buddhist perspective, this is what the Dharma represents. And it represents a few things, really. It represents the words of the Buddhist teachings, the act of putting those teachings into practice, and the attainment of awakening as a result of that practice. So it's really kind of these three things. So it's the teaching, and then it's the practice, and then it's the result, the fruit, as they say, of the labor. But this is labor. It's not for the weak, for the meek, it's for the strong, and the courageous. Because it's hard to look inward 
And that's why the Buddha was like, not me, not the statue. Actually, in the time of the Buddha and for about 200 years after, there was no statues of the Buddha. He wouldn't allow it. Because he didn't want, he was breaking away from the, uh, the, the like ritualistic kind of bowing to statues. As a, some kind of saving grace. So the Dharma. This kind of three-way division of the word Dharma acts as a map. Showing us how to take this external refuge or the external refuges and then make them internal. So the teachings, so we can read the teachings, we can hear the teachings. But if we don't take them in and practice, then they're, they just fall. This is what the, boy, the Buddha points to again and again in his teachings. In the teachings as they've been passed on. Now don't get me wrong. It's helpful. Sometimes a good book is a refuge. Sometimes us coming to a group like this or hearing the Dharma is a refuge. It's true. I agree. And the kind of second wave of that, so this, that's the external refuge. The second wave is to make that internal. This is a theme I'll come back to. This external to internal. So learning about the teachings, uh, using them to develop the qualities that the Buddha himself used to attain awakening. So, and then realizing that same release from danger that he found in the quality of Nibbana, what's called Nibbana, right? Which also means enlightenment or Nirvana or just freedom from suffering. The difference is... uh, like we can, we talk about freedom from suffering a lot, and some of us maybe have experienced that in little little ways. This is the total freedom from suffering. This term nibbana. And what I really like about this word nibbana is that it was actually just a householder word, and it just meant the extinguishing of the flame. So if someone was going to turn their uh, stove off, they would nibbana the stove. And then the Buddha used this householder word, this everyday language, and described that this is enlightenment, this is awakening. The extinguishing of the flame of our suffering. Really, of our craving. Sometimes when I think about that, I think, oh, that sounds so good. And sometimes I think about that and I think, oh, that sounds so boring. What if I had no craving? Then what? But from the Buddhist perspective, from the Buddhist teaching, this is really what we're talking about. Not desire, but craving. So this Nibbana, you know, the Buddha talks about we can touch within. And like I said before, we've all had little Nibbanas, right? One of my favorite teachers, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu, uh, used this term, little Nibbana. Little moments of awakening throughout the day, moments of clarity, 
you know, this if you sat retreats and things get kind of clear and there's lightness and free some freedom. Yeah, this is what I think helps sustain us along the path. If there was just an uh, a, a finish line, there wasn't anyone cheering us on or any internal kind of qualities that we could kind of get to and kind of know that okay, we're on the right path. This I, I start to feel my heart breaking open. I start to feel my mind becoming more calm. I start to understand tranquility a little bit. This is the verifiable thing along the path. So the third aspect is sangha, right, which means community. So the word sangha on an external level has two senses, right? What's called conventional sangha and then the ideal sangha. So the conventional sangha, well, I'll start with the ideal sangha. Because this is the this is the like two thousand five hundred and sixty years of carrying this teaching forward, Sangha. This is the all of the bodhisattvas and the uh, awakened monks and the you know all of the monastics who you know sweated and and who saved you know like if you think I think about Sri Lanka, if it wasn't for Sri Lankan Buddhism. Buddhism wouldn't even be alive when the uh, the Mughals when the Mughals came in through Pakistan and what's the other one? There's two countries right there on the border of India. Anyway, Pakistan was one of them. When they came in, they tried to wipe out Buddhism, and they actually smuggled all the scrolls to Sri Lanka. And kind of fortified the monks, just like fortified and practiced every day, reading and reading and reading, so they memorized every teaching of the Buddha. Like that's the ideal song. Right? His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh. Well, this is the ideal song. The song that consists of all people, lay or ordained who have practiced the Dharma to the point of at least getting a glimpse of freedom. So the conventional Sangha is this group, this center, the teachers here, your own, you know, your own community. They're kind of carrying forward. In the time of the Buddha, and it's still present today, there was this uh, these two words, Kalyanamita, which meant spiritual friend. And that's really what Sangha means, spiritual friend. Uh, friends along the path. And there's this one teaching, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Ananda or not, but Ananda was the Buddha's atten- attendant. And he, in the kind of the way that the stories are told, he was a little dense. Like he was always kind of asking the Buddha to repeat things, and wasn't always quite getting it. And that he never fully became uh, enlightened until after the Buddha died. Actually, there's a touching story about that, but I won't get into that one. But so there's this kind of exchange happening, and and the Buddha's talking about, uh, you know, Kalyanamita, spiritual friends, and how important the Sangha is the monastic community and the lay community and the reciprocity, the way in which 
um, that monks and nuns can't just go and be in the forest and wait, awaken. That we we have to bump up against each other, you know, and we have to uh, uh, carry the teaching forward to help others to awaken. This is the this is the uh, I was going to say requirement, but really this is the. can't think of the word. This is the responsibility of the monastic community and the teachers. But this, uh, this Kalyanamita, so Ananda and uh, the Buddha are having this conversation and, and Ananda comes back and says, oh, I, I get it. And so the Buddha was like, okay. <laughs> and um, and Ananda says, I, I understand. I understand that, that Kalyanamita, spiritual friendship, is half of the path. Is 50% of the path. And then the Buddha shakes his head. No, Ananda. No, Ananda. Kalyanamita is 100% of the path. This Sangha, this spiritual friendship. Who else encourages you? Who else keeps you going? Who else, who else also Keeps, keeps you clear, can help keep you clear when you're deluded, your spiritual friend. So this is uh, what's talked about is the Sangha. So not all members of the conventional Sangha are reliable models for behavior. And this is what's really important because we all have heard of the teachers who have you know, uh, misuse their roles, misuse their power. All those wonderful authors, some of them lost their way. Happens. And so this is why that skepticism and that kind of questioning is important that I talked about earlier. And that having verifiable faith. So it's good to question teachers. And it's good to question the Dharma too. There's this... um, Teaching, I'm trying to remember it. It's about the goldsmith. So the Buddha is saying, uh, test the Dharma, test the truth. As as if a, a, a goldsmith tests gold for its purity. So don't just accept it as truth because I say it. See for yourself. Align it with your own deepest understanding and knowing and see if that's true if it leads to your own happiness and your own freedom from suffering then that's the dharma that's the true dharma so when we're looking for guidance for guidance in the conduct of our lives we must look to the living and recorded examples provided by the ideal sangha this is important. This is helpful. One of the things about that I took out of this, you know, I, I was a little Dharma starstruck when I went to this, uh, you know, 250 of the, you know, North America, pretty much North America, some European uh, Dharma leaders, teachers, pioneers, people that have been practicing for 50, 60 years, Zen, Vajrayana, Vipassana. 
heroes, Bhikkhu Bodhi, you know, these scholars that have been translating the Dharma for years and years. I was a little starstruck. When I was, oh, Stephen Batchelor, oh yeah. I love your books. That's all I knew about him, was his books. And so the thing that was really great, that I really came away, the biggest lesson that I came away is that they're human. And that we're all in this together. And they were really the, the pioneers. The, the, there was actually 50 pioneers. And then another like 150 came later of the older teachers. And that was one of the things that I really came away with is that we're all in this together. And that's, they were really fostering that like Kalyanamita. It wasn't like I'm Joseph Goldstein and I know so much more than you at all. It was beautiful. So to have that kind of connection, really kind of, that's what I took away. It's like I had a misperception based on my idealization. And I got to, but you know, also they're really cool. <laughs> and, and if it wasn't for a lot of them and their books, I may not have found the Dharma. So, you know, grateful and humble. Well, yeah, without their example, we would not know. Without uh, the pioneers of American Buddhism, many of us may not have come across that one book or that DVD or that teaching or that seminar. So it's important. That's kind of the ideal Sangha. And then also, you know, this way of looking at the Sangha is that... Uh, that awakening is available to all, not just to the Buddha. This is really what the Buddha was saying from the very beginning. That this awakening is available to all. Doesn't mean that everyone's going to get it, understand it. And then how awakening expresses itself in real life. This is also part of the Sangha. Theravadan tradition believes that all have the ability to awaken, but we must practice. We can't just read books. We can't just go to the seminar. Or the, what was it? Bliss spray. We can't just go to, what, Safeway was it? Did you see that? Kara sent me this. I was talking about this bliss spray once, so she sent me a picture at Safeway. They have this, you know, bliss, bliss spray, get enlightened or whatever. It's like three ninety nine or something. I don't know. So on the internal level, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha are the skillful qualities that we develop in our own minds. And imitation... Uh, of our external models. So for instance, the Buddha was a person of wisdom, purity, and compassion. So we see that, we hear that, we understand that. And if we develop wisdom, purity, and compassion, we too will awaken. Just that simple. Perfection of wisdom, purity, and compassion. So purity, um, you know, in the 
in the traditional teachings, they use pure and purity a lot. And I've been starting to kind of reword things. And, uh, but I like purity, but I just had to get clear about what it meant. Because I used to think like, it was like you know, being dunked in the water purity, like I was original sin purity. And no, what the Buddha is talking about when he says purity, he means purity of mind. Purity of mind and heart. That the opposite is what's called the defilements. Right? Greed, hatred, and delusion. So being pure, or being cleansed, or cleansing ourselves of these aspects of greed, hatred, and delusion. What are known as the kalesas, or torments of mind. Don't they torment us? Yeah, they do. They torment me. And it's a gradual process, you know. So when we develop, you know, wisdom, purity, and compassion, they form our refuge on the internal level. So we begin to rely on these qualities within us. And it's not really looking outside. Now at first, we, you know, we need some reflection. We need teachers. We need to see monastics or people who have, that can show us that wisdom, purity, and compassion. You know, and I really think, I, when I think of two people that really do that well, I think of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and I think of Thich Nhat Hanh. They're just two figures that, they are icons of wisdom, Purity and compassion. There's others too. Ajahnamaro is also one. He's been a monk for 30 years. He's in the Theravadan tradition. But he's not a big uh, you know, movie star. He's just a quiet monk that sits in a monastery in England. So the you know the Buddha attained full awakening by developing conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment, and points us again and again to develop these within ourselves, and that this is a step to developing the three: wisdom, purity, and compassion. So conviction, some kind of faith, some verifiable faith, some trust. I was giving uh, this talk at another center and um, someone later said, so conviction to me is when you've made a decision, like you're not conflicted. There's, you've made a decision and you're convicted. You have a some kind of conviction in practice, some kind of trust, some faith that this might just work. Sounds good. Persistence, right? otherwise known as virya, uh, energy. Continuing that persistence, anyone that sat a retreat of any length knows that there's persistence involved. Bell after bell, or day after day, even just in your own practice, not in, not on retreat, but it roots really alive when you're on retreat. You're tired, 
cranky and all your stuff's up and you don't want to be next to people or whatever. It takes that persistence to show up regardless. I think it's a little easier when we're busy with our lives. And in some ways it takes even more persistence to show up to this center or to show up on your cushion at home every day. You know, there's this point um, in the story of the Buddha where, you know, he leaves his group of ascetics and goes to practice on his own. And he just gets, he gets a little bit, takes a little bit of food and gains some strength. And then he just is convicted and persistent. And he says, I will not move from this spot until I reach Nibbana, until I reach this freedom from suffering. And he didn't move for seven days. Of course, that's after you know years and years of practice. But still, it's convicted, it's persistent. And this is the where the story of Mara and all of the you know all of the egoic kind of armies of the mind attacked him, just like they attack us. Desire and hatred and ignorance, delusion. So these uh, can, these qualities. You know, with mindfulness, concentration, and discernment, they're also they're known as the five powers. So they start off as the five faculties. So we kind of need them in order to even pro- propel ourselves on the path, and then they become uh, so unshakable by their opposite, which are the hindrances, then that they uh, become powers. They become those refuges, those things to be relied on, relied on, relied upon. So when we've developed these same qualities to the point of attaining awakening also, that our awakening, that awakening becomes our ultimate refuge. So this is the point where the three aspects of the triple gem become one. So beyond the reach of greed, anger, delusion, and thus totally secure. And so these refuges from back to the kind of concept of higher power. That for many uh, Buddhists in America and beyond. That the refuges are this thing that's greater than ourselves. That the potential for awakening isn't just me or mine, it's everyone's. That the Dharma, the Dharma is so vast that it can be considered a higher power, the truth in nature. And that the Sangha, this Kalyanamita, this spiritual friendship, this connection, can carry us even when we're lost. This has been my experience anyway. Even up to just very recently. Had some experiences where I was deluded. 
was not seen clearly in a particular area in my, uh, my Sangha, my teacher's council. They were very like pointed. They were very clear. And they kept at me. And I was able to kind of break out of it a little bit. Like when we're so obsessed with our thoughts and our feelings and we believe everything that's going through our minds as if it was us. And then we get a little bit of distance through our practice and we can see from the observer position or the awareness position that, oh yeah, it's just thoughts, it's just feelings. And we're a little bit more free. In that same way. So a way that I experienced that kind of... Uh, Sangha as a higher power recently. So I think that's about it for now. So hopefully uh, this has been, maybe you've heard uh, refuges talk before, hopefully this has been somehow clarifying or helping to become clear or just understanding a little bit more about Buddha Dharma and Sangha. Also the five powers, the qualities that are pointed to as needed to sustain us along this path. I'll just say them again. So they're conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. So thank you for your time. I'm going to open up for questions. If you have any questions or comments. Because there's some things that 
are talked about in the Dharma that we can't know. Like about rebirth and, you know, not self. Some things, you know, karma, that we can, maybe we can get glimpses of as we become more uh, awakened, as we um, become more kind of clear, as we become less deluded, they're more, they're, we will continually awaken. It's, the, it's known as the gradual awakening. But it's important that you recognize that, that piece of like, yeah, you know, there's some things that, you know, I don't know. And the Buddha pointed to, though, that really trust in the verifiable aspects of faith. And I, and I actually am one of the people that I like, and me and, you know, also uh, a lot of the people that I teach with. Um, we just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happens when you die. I don't know if there's a rebirthing experience. And that was actually one of the things, you know, so here I am with all these 250 Buddhist teachers and I'm like, what's the bottom line? <laughs> you know? What is it? Yeah. Can you have more respect for someone who can just tell you? I don't know. I, I don't have experience of this, so I can't impart to you any wisdom because mm. I don't know. Mm. There's something more to be trusted in that than someone's like, oh yeah, here's a good story. This will make you feel better. <laughs> I think so. I think it shows, uh, I think it's reality. I think it shows humility. Yeah. Uh-huh. Stories are nice, though. Like, respect for your ability to, like, handle it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> reality. The reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Please. Um... I, I agree with a lot of the things that you were saying about just your understanding and interpretation of Buddhism because with, um, like, I've kind of recently, the last couple of years, been, like, just really interested in, like, this way of thinking, and the way I understand it is pretty much exactly the way you explained it. Um, and you were saying, um, what, what I really like about Buddhism is it's kind of, like, the potential for everyone to awaken, like you were saying, and Buddha's just, um, like, one of the examples of a person that has, like, found that awakening so um, for me, there's kind of like, like I, I guess it's something you don't really understand until you understand it. But it's like, what is that awakening or that like, like you were saying, you sit on the beach or in the forest and you just kind of like start to see the truth. Um, and it, I guess it relates to those five qualities and just kind of being more grounded in reality, more like aware of reality. But um, that's something that whenever I like meditate or just think about Buddhism, I'm just kind of like trying to figure out what I'm looking for, like, what I'm trying to do, and, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess that's my question. What's the question in there? Um, it just, just, it was, sound like a great statement, I just, oh, yeah. I'm not sure if yeah, that's a question. It's a lot of ideas, but I guess it's kind of just that, like, what is that idea of awakening that we all have the potential for? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is, like, what are we awakening to, or what is that awakening? I'll tell you when I find it. <laughs> and that's where the blind faith is. But see, for me, it's actually not blind. Because I do trust. Like, I trust those who have gone before. 
And that trust has been verified. Um, and I encourage every, everyone or anyone to look. And that's where it's not like, ooh, I'm going to put a teacher on a pedestal, but I will respect what I see and what I feel and what I know to be true. You know? And you were also talking about like that craving, and I guess like one thing is just like when you like meditate and like step back from like all those thoughts, you like realize where you are craving and what you are craving, and like how much control that has over you. So I guess you become more like able to separate yourself from that which makes you suffer. That's the idea. That's the idea. Yeah. On that note, Jason, you said something about. Um, um, craving and desire, that the goal um, to lessen the craving, not necessarily the desire. And I was wondering if you could go over that. Well, that's really a whole talk, but the bottom line is that desire is either kind of wholesome or unwholesome. Uh, but when we're th- when we're we we can have wholesome desire. That desire is not we're gonna have desire. The Buddha had desire after his awakening. You know, after he became fully awakened. That that the 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 discernment the key there is that it's the craving. So good things happen. Happiness, joy, peace. When we're clinging to happiness, joy, and peace, then we're, we're, we're causing suffering. So it's really, it's about letting go of the, the craving to have things be anything other than they are. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. It's quite a, a nuance. This is an important nuance. It's very yeah. important, yeah. So just to, um, yeah, having this desire of, you know, Wholesome desire is a desire that leads to uh, happiness, ease of being, and and doesn't necessarily cause craving, but causes cessation, contentment, and all the other kinds of desire, bad, not good, horrible. (laughs) Yeah, because it just causes more craving, right? Tanha. Uh, the Buddha used the word tanha. Thirst. That we can't quench. So we, we need to actually end there. Unfortunately, we have- Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.